You're listening to a podcast produced by the Design Institute of Australia, supported by Laminex. The DIA is the peak industry body for professional designers, representing Australian designers locally and internationally. We exist to help Australia's professional designers succeed in business and enjoy their working lives by collectively growing Australia's reputation as a design nation. The DIA National Office is on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge their ownership of the land and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. Hi, I'm Renee Ballard and on behalf of the DIA, this podcast is in support of the DIA NADOC Week Forum, Macro Micro, Craft Culture, Loci Local. The forum is a discussion of the importance of craft within Indigenous culture and the worldwide return to the relevance of craft post-COVID an exploration of how this worldwide cultural shift might align to a deeper understanding and appreciation of Indigenous craft and how this might inform a future of Australian design direction. Today we're talking to Jeefer Greenaway. He is the founding director of the award-winning practice Greenaway Architects, established in 1998, a University Melbourne senior academic of two decades standing and a regular design commentator on ABC Radio. He's championed Indigenous-led thinking for over 25 years as a registered architect in New South Wales and Victoria, including as co-founder of Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria, as co-author of the International Indigenous Design Charter, and as a regional ambassador of Oceana of Indigo, which is the International Indigenous Design Network. He is a founding signatory of Architects Declare Australia, an initiative foregrounding architecture's role in tackling the challenges of climate change and biodiversity loss. Is co-curator with Tristan Wong of the Australian exhibition of La Biennale Architectura de Venezia in 20 and 21, and was recently included in the Qantas 100 Inspiring Australians and was honoured to be inducted into the Design Institute's 2020 Hall of Fame, signifying an outstanding body of work, contribution to Australian design and achievement in furthering the profession. His projects include the Curie Heritage Trust, the Luigia Institute and the award-winning Nagara Place. Welcome to our podcast, Chifa. Thanks for having me. First off, I'd love to ask some questions around the first theme of the forum, which is macro and micro. Can I ask you, um, how do you individually approach the creative process? Well, it really starts with a conversation and the conversation is invariably with those who are engaged to design for. And in many respects, design is a, a collaborative model of of a journey that we go on together. And ultimately for me, it it starts with deep listening and the ability to translate the ideas and the aspiration and the ambitions of the clients. And and we're in some respects, a sort of a cultural interlocutor or or a curator to take on board all the various component parts and then, you know, play back what we understand the project is and for me it's that immediacy of mind to hand the ability to draw and to ideate and to to work together you know in that collaborative model oh i totally agree i um i call it we have a similar experience the way we do it and i call it full body listening like i just try and take on every single detail so i really get what you mean can you describe how culture is embedded in your individual design and your creative perspective Yeah, it's an interesting area. In some respects, we're all surrounded by different forms of cultures. And, you know, in the Australian experience, often we share a a bicultural experience or or multicultural experience. And so I certainly have that same 
experience in terms of my heritage and background as well. And, you know, in many respects, we, we draw on all of ourselves. But when we really want to embed and connect to an authentic experience of this place, then we often delve deep. And, and this is where we seek to really, you know, engage with country, to, to understand where the project is located, to embed that within the DNA of the design thinking, and then start to incorporate opportunities where we celebrate culture, where we amplify culture, where we really think about different forms of cultural expression. And, and I would argue that architecture, interior design, landscape design, jewellery design, fashion design, they're all forms of cultural expression in the same way as, as song or, or dance or, or ceremony. So for me, this is where the, the really interesting intersections start to happen because we're drawing upon design as a form of cultural expression. Yeah, I understand. Has your approach to creative expression evolved over time? I think in many respects, you build up a degree of confidence in design practice as you've had more experiences and, and more opportunities and you've you've engaged with with a broad spectrum of different clients and projects. So you, you then are able to ideate quite quickly and efficiently, but also you, you draw on, on all that breadth of different life experiences and, and I guess cumulative wisdom that's built up over time. And I guess in some respects, what I'm seeking to do now is look at opportunities where we empower others through the projects that we undertake. So how do we actually facilitate self-determination? How do we facilitate um, a true agency, particularly for Indigenous voices? How do we find opportunities around what I call design equity? Um, how do we create inclusive design which considers some of the challenges that beset us? So, you know, climate change and understanding that often the design professions have been complicit in some of the challenges. So there's certainly been a lack of consideration in the past around sustainability and, and some of those considerations. So they are now really being woven into our design practice. Can you tell me more about um, your concept of design equity? Well, this really is, is foregrounding the importance of how we think about our responsibility. So in many respects, I think the design profession comes with a social contract. And that social contract presupposes that we do good and that we don't leave things worse than we, when we started. But also what has tended to happen in the past is there haven't been very many Indigenous voices, for instance, and those from, from other minority groups. So how do we empower a broader spectrum that really ref, reflects the true diversity of, of the Australian design um, industry, if you will, and how do we provide opportunities? And to that end, you know, a number of years ago, it's actually 10 years this year, we started a not-for-profit organisation, Ruben Berg and myself, called Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria. And it's the only peak design body that represents Indigenous practitioners across a spectrum of design disciplines. And that really was a means to provide lateral pathways into universities, to showcase and role model and to mentor young practitioners to come through, but also to engage with the design profession, design bodies, universities, government instrumentalities to demonstrate the value of Indigenous knowledge systems to start to inform and shape the places and spaces and design culture that we're a part of. So you can see how they become really important, I guess, legacy pieces to start to 
open up opportunities so there is a, a true sense that there is design equity embedded within design practice. Amazing. Um, how do you see your approach connecting to culture and community? Well, we work always within a community setting. And so whether it's stakeholders which are, you know, they, they might be the, the local community, it, it might be, you know, government instrumentalities, it might be, you know, a university. So re regardless of the project, we're working within a, in a community environment and there's often socially complex um, scenarios that are playing out. So we need to ensure that everyone has a shared vision and, and a shared values so we can get the best and optimal outcome. So really, as we see, we often become key contributors in developing the engagement process and strategy, which underscores how do we actually incorporate the various voices and different ideas and bring that together in a cohesive and integrated way. So that to me is really important and then bringing the community on the journey with us. And then when we're engaging, for instance, with traditional owner groups, knowledge keepers and custodians, we need to work a little bit differently. And so there often we need to understand that we have to sometimes slow down to speed up. Sometimes we actually have to consider processes which ensures that different elements are considered. So it might be about how do we build capacity and resources? How do we provide opportunities through, you know, our procurement policies? How do we develop strategies that, you know, really ensures that Indigenous voices are embedded within the design? And how do we start to demonstrate the value and the contribution that all contributors make? And how do we go back and demonstrate that these are the ways where we've captured the insights with your permission and this is how it's actually um, you know, come to fruition. So as you close the loop and really demonstrate you know, best practice to, to really showcase the value and the, the shared enterprise that is often the design journey. Sounds like um, you've got great experience and you're really building this amazing, you're, you're able to hold space for all of these voices to be heard and taken into account. And like you said earlier, into the DNA of the design and the fabric of the project, which I know firsthand is much easier than it sounds. So it sounds like you've got great experience with that. Well, you need to embed methodologies and processes. So that's really the key and carve out that requisite time and space. And, and often I frame it around, well, what is the, the risk appetite of doing it wrong? So why not do it right in the first place and that often requires an investment in time and resources. So, you know, having that upfront and early and knowing that that's part of the process becomes really important. So you, you socialise that from the outset and you embed that as part of the ways of working. How do you see this worldwide shift in appreciation of craft developing within Australia? Well, it's a really interesting question, this notion of craft, particularly if you say take it through an Indigenous lens. And for me, as best as I can determine, you know, in, in the, the many conversations I've had with traditional custodians and, and Aboriginal people over the last 25 years or so, is there is no word for art or craft or design in any Aboriginal language. Certainly there would be words for, for mark making or shelter or or you know, culture and ceremony and, and, and other domains like that. But in some respects, I think there's a bit of a convergence happening as well between art, craft and design. 
And so that sort of segmentation and sort of silo-based approach to me is not necessarily consistent with a, a holistic Indigenous ways of working. And so sometimes it requires an, an input around craft. And I think the value of, of the sort of resurgence or the renaissance of craft techniques is bringing back some of those traditional skills. And so there certainly has been revival. And, and what it demonstrates really is an intuitive understanding of, of a harmonious approach to design. And often it, it embeds a real sustainable way of thinking. But also what's really intriguing for me and observing over recent years particularly is how we start to collide contemporary techniques with craft traditional techniques and that fusion and that innovation of where those collide is where to me is, is the, the next big thing is, is how it's going to start to explode and you're going to see some amazing work. And there's some amazing artists, designers, crafters, however you wish to describe them, who are flying under the radar doing amazing work and they're going to have their day in the sun very soon and there's some you know, really established practitioners out there doing some amazing work that are, are known and, and certainly are, are seen to be you know, leaders in their field. So you know, watch this space, there's, there's only more to come. Our third topic, well, the next topic I'd like to talk about is the uh, theme around loci local. Um, currently, there's a groundswell of interest around Indigenous craft, and within this is an understanding and appreciation of storytelling and connection to land. How do you see this emergence weaving into contemporary Australian culture, and will it inform your practice as a designer and, you know, and a creative? Well, I think it really centres on an understanding of country. So, if we look at the Aboriginal map of Australia or the, the Indigenous map of Australia, it showcases over 250 distinct language groups and 600 dialects. So what that talks to is diversity. And so this monolithic or homogenous approach or understanding of Indigenous cultures is missing the point. So that specificity of place and understanding that there are embedded stories and narratives which connect to all the different places across this vast island continent. And so how do we actually bring that to the surface? And what I think the advantage of using, you know, techniques and craft and, and other forms of, of cultural expression is we can embed stories and narrative. And the, the idea of ensuring authentic experiences and connection is what people are crying out for. And so as more and more things are mediated through technology, I think what people are really interested in is that provenance, that authenticity, and how better to do that than to start to really connect to the layers of history and memory um, and some of those you know, narratives and stories which are so compelling and, and are often unseen. And so a lot of the work that we do is really about making the invisible visible and really foregrounding and understanding that there are so many engaging stories that need to be told. And I think now we've got to a, a level of cultural maturity where we can have these conversations, where there's an appetite and a desire to really do that uh, in, in ways which talks to our shared humanity. How do you see this connection between an ancient craft and this current cultural shift away from excess consumption and the reckoning of a sustainable future where we might choose to have only what we need? Well, the best way to respond to that is, is a bit of an anecdote. I remember going on a design anthropology course 
in East Arnhem Land. And we were working with the, the local knowledge keepers and elders there in an initiative which was looking at traditional dyeing practices. So looking at, you know, drawing upon the, the resources of the land to create dyes and to pigment different materials as part of traditional practice. And what we we're looking at there was how the elders there would create weaving baskets and, and, and different you know, artifacts like you know, dilly bags and, and the like. And so we went out on country with the elders. And so these were old women, often with poor, very poor eyesight, you know, in, in the back of the ute. And we'll be, you know, rattling through the bush. And, you know, after a while, you, you, the Australian bush starts to look fairly similar. But then they'll sort of call out, oh, you need to stop now. They'll get out of the back of the ute. They'll pick up their digging stick. They'll scratch away and they'll bring out this bulb. And then with the digging stick, they'll reveal that this, this bulb under the ground is fire engine red. Okay, okay, that's the one we need. And so that would then become the dye for um, the weaving of the pandanus, um, which was the plant which was used to create the baskets. And then we'll go out into country, we'll actually collect the pandanus plants. So they, they are quite sharp, so you can cut your hands on it when you sort of uh, take it. Um, and then you have to strip it down and then they boil it up and then tie it up in a knot and then they throw in the bulbs and then it starts to create the, the coloration and the change of the coloration of the pandanus plant. And they'll, they'll lay it out to dry and you'd see the, the entire journey, but also the investment of time, but the deep knowledge that resided in that understanding, that connection to country and using the resources which are in proximity. So, you, you know, there's not, you know, you know, huge air miles in order to, to capture the material. You're building on capacity and building skills and resources in terms of understanding and reading the landscape. And then, you know, understanding that there are a number of different elements there which you'd otherwise miss. So, for instance, there was a tiny little seed pod which they would also use for a different colour and they were the side of, size of it like a sesame seed. So then they would grab some of these that would be used to create another colour and then you'd have this beautiful multicoloured basket and then you'd see it from, from nothing to something and the journey and the time and the investment and the knowledge and then you then understand both the, the, the authenticity and the provenance but also why they cost what they cost because while it you know, might be a very small basket there's an intricacy, there, there's an investment, there is a, a an appreciation of time in order to create this artifact at, at the end. So you therefore go, well, actually, this is worth every cent, if not more, for this beautiful basket because of that journey and the way you get to that point. And it is a sustainable practice as well. So they're not they're only taking that which they need, not any more. And so again, it you know really demonstrates that that holistic understanding of country. And you know, that is you know, really the, the sense that Indigenous people were the first ecologists here. They only take that which they need. Brilliant. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Ajifa. Really looking forward to seeing you and everyone else on November the 9th. Tickets are available on the DIA website and uh, look forward to hearing more. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast made possible by the support of Laminex, Australia's leading supplier of modern laminates, quality engineered stone, timber panelling and more. The Design Institute of Australia would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered and all First Nations people on the land
land now known as Australia. The DIA respectfully recognises Elders past, present and emerging. We celebrate the innovation, creativity and ingenuity of the world's oldest continuing creative culture.